0: Welcome to part two of slavery in colonial America. In part one, we discussed the very beginning of the transatlantic slave trade and what groups were affected in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. In part two, we're going to discuss some of the uprisings that happened during this period and how the colonies began to codify slavery into law. Now, before we begin, I do want to preface that again, just like in the last episode, I will be reading some historical documents that have words that are offensive uh, in today's society. So just bear that in mind. This is for historical purposes only. Um, These are not words to be used and thrown around casually, uh, and they are offensive today. We have also hit the 15,000 mark here on YouTube. I am so incredibly excited about that. Thank you guys so much for that, for sharing the videos, for liking the videos. Spotify, we've already reached over a thousand on Spotify and I am just blown away. If you are listening on Spotify, can you please give me a review? If you are here on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and comment down below your thoughts on today's videos, your thoughts about slavery in colonial America. We're going to be talking about some of the revolts today, and some of them are pretty brutal. Let me know if you've ever heard of them before, because I feel like a lot of these revolts kind of get buried in history. And when I say buried in history, I don't mean hidden. I just mean in the grand space of everything that you need to cover when it comes to history. These are more deep dive topics that most people, unless they are searching for them, will not hear about in school. So let me know your thoughts on that. Which ones you had heard before if you've heard of them and which ones you've never heard before? Let me know in the comments below. social economic and political tensions erupted in 1676 in the form of bacon's rebellion essentially what was virtually a civil war in virginia an eminent planter named nathaniel bacon assumed the leadership of discontented people who took up arms against those who remained loyal to the british appointed governor sir william berkeley bacon's rebellion would end with bacon's death In the fall of 1676. And though Nathaniel Bacon did not openly question the treatment of blacks and Native Americans in Virginia, and Bacon's rebellion really wasn't a slave revolt, however, as far as many eminent tobacco planters were concerned, one of the most worrying aspects of the movement he had led was that armed blacks and Indians had fought alongside poor whites. This raised the horrifying prospect of a dangerous alliance. Black people and underclass whites seemed to be cooperating in a way that emphasized shared economic grievances and minimized the racial and ethnic Differences. Bacon's rebellion essentially leads planters, in fear of a unified poor, to institutionalize racism to create division within the lower, poorer classes. Author Alan Taylor notes slave numbers surged from a mere 300 in 1650 to 13,000 by 1700 when Africans constituted 13% of the Chesapeake population. See, in order to further discourage black and white farmers from uniting once more, the Virginia House of Burgesses reduced the poll tax so that the greater burden fell on the poorer farmers, many of whom were black. Black people were becoming more and more linked with a lesser slave class by emphasizing racial distinctions between whites and blacks, while downplaying class inequalities between rich and poor whites, these policies promoted the idea of, dare I say it, white supremacy. By 1664, the Dutch in New Netherlands and the Dutch West India Company had tried for years to make New Amsterdam work. However, by the time Richard Nichols sailed into New Amsterdam Harbor and demanded that New Netherlands surrender, the Dutch surrendered without a fight. New Amsterdam was now under the control of the province of New York. And with the Dutch being heavily involved in the African slave trade, when the English renamed the city to New York. They had one of the largest black populations of any settlement in the 13 colonies. Though New York City was not known for its huge plantations or for producing cash crops, its slaves were more domestic servants, artisans, dock workers, and various other skilled laborers. There was also a large free black community that oftentimes worked alongside black enslaved people this was a situation that you would not see in the southern colonies this was also a situation that made it easy for the enslaved in the city to communicate and planned for revolt. By the early 1700s, about 20% of the population were enslaved black people. Concerned of a conspiracy, city officials and citizens slowly eroded the rights of free black people. In 1702, the first of the New York Slave Codes were passed, further limiting the rights enjoyed by people of color in new york the new slave codes prevented slaves from meeting away from their slave owners property in groups of three or more and permitted slave owners to punish their slaves if they saw fit short of maiming or killing them and it also banned the testimony of slaves in court except of course against other slaves on december 13, 1711 the new york city common council established the city's first slave market near Wall Street for the sale and rental of enslaved Africans and Native Americans. A group of more than 20 black slaves gathered on the night of April 6, 1712 and set fire to a building on Maiden Lane near Broadway. While the colonists tried to put out the fire, the enslaved, armed with guns, hatchets, and swords, attacked the colonists and then ran off. Eight white colonists were killed and seven wounded. All the runaway slaves were captured almost immediately and returned to their owners. Colonial forces arrested 70 black people and jailed them. Six were reported to have committed suicide. 27 were put on trial, 21 of whom were convicted and sentenced to death. 20 were burned to death, and one was executed on a breaking wheel. After the revolt, the city and colony passed more restrictive laws governing black and Indian slaves. Slaves were not permitted to carry firearms, and gambling was outlawed. The colony required slave owners who wanted to free their slaves to pay a tax of 200 pounds per person, then an amount much higher than the cost of a slave. In 1715, Governor Robert Hunter argued in London before the Lords of Trade that manumission and the chance for a slave to inherit part of a master's wealth was important to maintain in New York. He said that this was a proper reward for a slave who had helped a master earn a lifetime's fortune, and that it could keep the slave from descending into despair. Hunter's hope was to lessen the harsh treatment of the enslaved, but he failed. In 1713, at the end of the War of Spanish Secession and the signing of the Treaty of Utrecht, the Asiento, or the Devil's Bargain, was now in the hands of Great Britain. This would lead to an explosion of African slaves being sold into the British American colonies. For example, historian Betty Wood writes that the number of enslaved people imported into the colony each year came almost exclusively through the port of Charleston between the 1720s and 1730s. In 1725, just over 400 African slaves came through the port of Charleston. By 1736, there would be about three thousand enslaved Africans brought through the port of Charleston. South Carolina's enslaved population grew from around 4,000 in 1708 to just over 39,000 in 1740. Within a few years, it would be the only mainland colony with a black majority. Now, when I lived in Charleston, South Carolina, I volunteered at a small county museum, and in the museum, we had an archive. And as I was going through some of the papers in there, I stumbled across one that referenced the Stono Rebellion. This was a few years before I had finished my degree in history, and I was working alongside the resident historian in the archive. I asked him about Stono, and he told me that the only thing left regarding the Stono Rebellion in 1739 is a little historical marker on the side of the highway about 20 miles outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Now, the funny thing was, I had driven past this marker several times and never really stopped to pay attention to it, not realizing that the Stono Rebellion was one of those events that had a profound impact on how the colonies and later the states would move forward in regards to slavery. As Africans became the majority in South Carolina, planters became increasingly paranoid of a conspiracy of revolt. Historian Alan Taylor wrote, in a desperate search for security, the Carolina planters adopted the West Indian system of strict surveillance and harsh punishment to keep the slaves intimidated and working. The system criminalized formerly tolerant behavior, revoking the degree of trust and autonomy previously allowed by most slaves. Slaves who traveled without a pass, conjugated from a distance, kept firearms to hunt game, or learned to read a newspaper had to do so secretly. Because the colonists rewarded black informants, slaves also had to distrust one another in pursuing any forbidden activity. The new system demanded a constant straining vigilance from whites. The planters' fears were realized when the Stono Rebellion would begin on September 9th, 1739. It would be the largest slave insurrection in the British American colonies. The violence began 20 miles from Charlestown when 20 slaves stole guns and powder from a store killing and decapitating the two storekeepers. They began to march south, hoping to reach Spanish Florida, which welcomed runaway slaves as long as they converted to Catholicism. Instead of making haste, though, they proceeded deliberately, displaying a makeshift flag, beating two drums, chanting liberty. They hoped to gather strength in numbers by destroying plantations and recruiting more slaves to rebel. Along the way, their number grew to at least 80, and perhaps as many as 100. They burned several plantations and killed about 20 white. They showed discretion though, when they spared an innkeeper considered a good man and kind to his slaves. The local planters mustered their forces on the second day of the uprising. Desperate to suppress the rebellion, lest it succeed and inspire others, about a 100 armed and mounted militiamen surprised and routed the rebels. Killing most. To terrify the other slaves, the rebels' heads were cut off and placed upon posts, one head every mile between the battlefield and Charlestown. About 30 of the rebels escaped into the forest, but within a month, almost all were killed by a massive manhunt that also included native bounty hunters. In the aftermath, South Carolina would pass the Negro Act of 1740. This made it illegal for enslaved Africans to move abroad, assemble in groups, raise food, earn money, and learn to write. Additionally, owners were now permitted to kill rebellious slaves if necessary. This act would remain in effect, yet expounded upon until 1865. By the 1740s, we were starting to see a shift in the colonies, particularly when it came to the North and South colonies. Abolitionism in colonial America began very early on. There was kind of this fight between indentured servitude and chattel slavery. Alongside the Great Awakening and the Enlightenment, we see the beginning of the abolitionist movement as early as 1688. Quakers began to write petitions against slavery in Pennsylvania and rallied hard against such an evil act. They would write pamphlets condemning slavery. In fact, the first protest against slavery was in 1711, speared along by a group of Quakers who belonged to the Religious Society of Friends. Abolitionism would carry itself into the Great Awakening alongside some of those religious leaders like John Wesley, Absalom Jones, and Bishop Richard Allen. We would also see enlightened activists like Benjamin Lay, John Woolman, Benjamin Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. Slavery would be banned in the colony of Georgia soon after its founding in 1733. The colony's founder, James Oglethorpe, would fight off several attempts by South Carolina merchants and land speculators to introduce slavery into the colony. In 1739, Oglethorpe wrote to the Virginia trustees, urging them to hold firm. If we allow slaves, we act against the very principles by which we associated together, which was to relieve the distresses. Unfortunately though, Oglethorpe would lose that battle. And in 1750, Georgia would permit slavery within the colony. Though the South was taking steps to solidify slavery, the North, would was taking steps in the opposite direction. Many of the colonial legislatures worked to enact laws that would limit slavery. The provincial legislature of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the 1760s approved a law prohibiting the importation and purchase of slaves by any Massachusetts citizen. The loyalist governor of Massachusetts, though, Thomas Hutchinson vetoed the law, an action that prompted an angered reaction from the general public. In 1772, American abolitionists were cheered on by the decision of Somerset v. Stewart, which prohibited slavery in the United Kingdom, though not in its colony. Between 1764 and 1774, 17 enslaved African Americans appeared before the Massachusetts court in freedom suits, spurred on by the decision made in Somerset v. Stewart case, which, although not applying to the colonies, was still received positively by the American abolitionists. Boston lawyer Benjamin Kent represented them. In 1766, Kent won a case, Slew vs. Whipple, to liberate Jenny Slew. A mixed race woman who had been kidnapped in Massachusetts and handled as a slave. In 1774, the influential Fairfax Resolves called for an end to the, quote, wicked, cruel, and unnatural Atlantic slave trade. Written at the behest of George Washington and others, they were authored primarily by George. Mason. George Mason, who would later refuse to sign the United States Constitution because it did not prohibit slavery. The resolutions, though, rejected the British Parliament's claim of supreme authority over the American colonies. More than 30 counties in Virginia passed similar resolutions in 1774. But the Fairfax Resolves were the most detailed, the most influential, and the most Radical. Historian Betty Wood writes Other than the improbability of a successful black revolution, the only thing that was certain in 1776 was that the American War of Independence would be a war about the institution of slavery as well as about white freedom. This war and its outcome would determine the fate of all Americans, black and white. What could not be foreseen in 1776 was that it would take almost another century and another bloody war to finally bring the institution of slavery to an end. That period is called the plantation generations, and That will be a period that we will discuss much later as we go through the next season of this podcast. Thank you so much for watching and listening to Slavery in America Part 2. I am so excited because in the next couple episodes, we are going to start talking about the French and Indian War. That is the war that made America. Many historians believe, as do I, that this is where the American Revolution really first begins. So I am really excited to talk about that. Before that episode, though, Historical USA has taken a little bit of a road trip. And I am going to share with you our awesome experience at Gettysburg last weekend. So there is going to be a little bit of a vlog that will be on YouTube and Rumble.com. Unfortunately, it will not be on Spotify. So if you are listening, you can head on over to YouTube, subscribe to me over there or Rumble.com, Historical USA and subscribe and follow me over there as well. And that will be out in two weeks for the list of all the books and all of my show notes for this episode please go to ww.historicalus.com and remember we're taking a little bit of a break from history hour as we are on school break right now, at least I am. So I will be in and out kind of traveling, which makes it really difficult to schedule um, history hours. So we are taking a little bit of a hiatus there, but we will be back um, after this summer.